a very good morning, good afternoon, good evening from wherever you're joining us this day. I wish to welcome you to this policy seminar entitled Ensuring a Focus on Women and Girls in the Global Food Crisis Response. This policy seminar is co-organized by United States Agency for International Development, USAID, Feed the Future Initiative, the International Food Policy Research Institute, and the CGI Agenda Impact Platform. My name is Vivian Atakos. I am Global Engagement and Policy Specialist for the uh, CGI Agenda Platform. So at this point, I'd like to welcome the rest of the speakers that are joining us uh, for this event. We will have two sessions. So at this point, I wish to introduce the first uh, group of speakers. First up, we will have opening remarks from Jennifer Horsfall, who is with the Bureau for Resilience and Food Security Global uh, Food Security Manager and Feed the Future Crisis Team Lead at the USAID, that is United States Agency for International Development. Uh, she'll be joining us to give us some opening remarks. I'm sure you can see her on your screen already. Next, we'll move on to Elizabeth Bryan, who is Senior Scientist. Uh, with the International Food Policy Research Institute. And after Elizabeth, we are going to get some perspectives from women farmers on the ground. And we are delighted today that we have Hannah Washira, who is a champion farmer with Groots Kenya. I wish to remind you that we'll also like to hear from you. So uh, you are following us from various platforms. We want to you to participate through the question and answer session. So please submit your questions with your name and organization on the various platforms where you're following us, including the IFPRI website, ifpri.org, a Facebook page, LinkedIn, YouTube, and also engage with us on Twitter using the hashtag AskIFPRI. So at this point, I'd like to move us along pretty fast because we have a great agenda in front of us. So I wish to welcome uh, Jennifer Hospital from uh, USAID, I have already introduced her. She's going to give us the opening remarks. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you so much, Vivian. I just wanna make sure first that you can all hear me okay? I can Perfect. hear you and I can see you. You look great. Please go Thank ahead. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Vivian. Well, I appreciate the introduction and I'm also thrilled to be here with you all this morning. Um, as Vivian uh, so wonderfully introduced me already, I will just say my name is Jennifer Horsfall um, with USAID in the Bureau of Resilience and Food Security, um, where I'm helping to lead our Feed the Future Crisis team um, and serving now as the Global Food Crisis Manager um, in partnership with new leadership in our Bureau. Um, so we have a new assistant to the administrator, Dina Esposito, um, who is leading uh, the Bureau for Resilience and Food Security and sends her warmest regards and thrilled um, to hear um, and hearing from all of you eventually about this important topic. Uh, a big thanks to IFPRI, of course, and CGIAR, the Gender Impact Platform, for co-hosting this very important and timely policy seminar. And really, I appreciate um, the opportunity to make a few brief remarks to get us started. Um, Gender equity and equality and empowering women and girls is more urgent than ever. At this critical moment, when the world is on the brink of experiencing unprecedented levels of global hunger, we need to remember that the multiple roles women play across the food system, on and off the farm, put them at a critical nexus of food security, nutrition, 
and resilience, including to climate change. The consequences of crises manifest in many aspects of women's and girls' lives. COVID-19 pandemic, of course, pushed an additional 47 million girls and women, including young women who are youth, into extreme poverty, reversing decades of progress. In 2021, at least 126 million more women than men were experiencing food insecurity. And unfortunately, that gap is growing. Gender-based violence, including child and early marriage, has been on the rise, threatening the well-being of girls and young women in the short and short term and the future. At the same time, we know that women are a big part of the solution. As women's incomes rise and as women have greater control over expenditures, child nutrition improves through improved diets and healthcare. Households in which women are empowered tend to be more resilient to shocks and stresses, such as economic downturns and climate change. As we respond to today's crises, our efforts can support the world's women farmers to be more resilient to the shocks of tomorrow and promote food systems that are inclusive and equitable and benefit and empower women in all their diversity. Just last week, USAID's administrator, Samantha Power, gave an incredible speech at the World Food Prize, which focused on our response to multiple crises affecting the food system. She spoke about changing what we grow, how we grow it, and who benefits. And in terms of who benefits, I want to emphasize that she said it is essential that we take on this third challenge in a more intense way and make sure that the playing field is leveled for small farmers, especially women. Administrator Power urged everyone, and I want to echo that here, that her task is to, quote, change cultural norms that relegate women to the home and begin dismantling cultural and legal barriers that are holding back our women farmers, our women leaders. Because when we hold women back, we hold everyone back. And I encourage you to go onto the USAID website, usaid.gov, because if you haven't heard that speech, you need to hear that speech. It was inspiring and it really set a direction uh, for the priorities of this agency and for, where all we, for, for all the work that you are doing as well to lean into this space. We were excited to support IFPRI to convene a roundtable earlier this year, not only to highlight the impacts of the current global food crisis on women and girls, but more critically to outline recommendations for the immediate as well as the long-term. And you know, as you know, these recommendations really build on many years of learning and provide a great framework for action. However, we do also hope that they will be a starting point for further conversation among stakeholders con to contextualize prioritize and operationalize <laughs> these recommendations moving forward. And today's seminar is a step towards that vision. So thank you all again for inviting me today. And I'm really looking forward to this discussion. And again, of course, applaud all your efforts in this space. Thank you, over. Wow, thank you very much, uh, Jennifer, for those wonderful opening remarks and just getting us started on a high note. We are so glad that you could join us and we appreciate even the reference to the statement um, that we need to listen to and to hear. I'm sure many of us are going to head over and listen to it. So thank you very much. So now let's move on. Uh, we have with us Elizabeth Bryan, whom I had introduced to you is senior scientist at IFPRI. She's going to speak to recommendations from the roundtable.
I think we may have just lost Vivian, so I'm going to just jump right into the presentation. Um, would you please put the slides up on the screen? Okay, great. So thank you all very much for joining this policy seminar today. I'm going to start by giving some brief background on how this event came about and provide some general framing for the discussion that we will have later during the event. So back in June of this year, as Jennifer mentioned, IFPRI's Gender, Climate Change and Nutrition Integration Initiative, or GCAN project, convened a group of experts from UN agencies, donors, researchers, NGOs and farmers at a virtual roundtable event. And we drew on all the knowledge within this group to trace out the gendered impacts of the global food crisis uh, that's been exacerbated by the war in Ukraine and to come up with a set of recommendations on how to address these impacts in a gender responsive way. And then these recommendations were summarized in a comment in Nature that was published in August of this year. So I'm gonna give a very brief overview of these uh, gendered impact pathways and summary of recommendations. And then we will hear from a farmer who's experiencing these impacts on the ground, as Vivian mentioned, and then get into more details about some of the solutions during a panel discussion. Uh, next slide, please. So as shown in this figure, the prices of food, fuel, and fertilizer have increased dramatically since 2020. And these price trends were exacerbated by the war in Ukraine, but prices were already going up during the COVID-19 pandemic. And climate extreme events further contribute to rising prices. And prices have continued to rise even over the last few months compared to earlier in the year. Next slide, please. So what are the gendered impact pathways? Over the last few years, um, as was already mentioned by Jennifer, we've seen an increase in the gender gap in food insecurity, largely driven by COVID-19. So going into this current food crisis, the concern is that women have lower resilience capacity to cope with rising prices of food, fuel, and agricultural inputs. Thus, the current crisis is likely to lead to an even further widening of the gender gap. And at the same time, increased scarcity of farm inputs like fertilizer and pesticides, and the increasing cost of fuel for agricultural machinery or for bringing goods to markets makes it even more difficult for women to access these inputs to manage their farming activities or small businesses. And on top of that, some of the measures proposed to address the global food crisis may actually exacerbate gender inequality if they're rolled out in a gender blind way. For example, expanding subsidies for fertilizers are less likely to reach women, and some of the agroecological approaches to farming uh, may increase women's work burden. Lastly, government budgets are also strained due to rising costs, and this means that support to vulnerable populations, including women and girls, may be more limited. And then there are long-term and even intergenerational implications of widening gender inequality. For example, rising food insecurity among women means that their children are more likely to have lower birth weights and end up undernourished themselves. And some harmful coping responses, like pulling girls from school and marrying them early, can reduce their lifelong economic opportunities and well-being. Next slide, please. And the recommendations that emerge from the roundtable discussion are summarized here. 
Um, first, we need to gather and analyze more sex disaggregated evidence on the gendered impacts of the crisis to better target resources where they're needed most. Without access to such data, gender blind investments are really difficult to avoid. Uh, we also need to expand social protection and anti-violence programs to reduce the harmful impacts on women and girls, including keeping girls in school and avoiding early or forced marriage. We also need to increase opportunities for women to return to work, as many women dropped out of the workforce during the pandemic. This includes providing support to women-owned businesses by providing things like childcare, additional training, and expanding access to finance. Another recommendation that emerged is to work with existing social networks and women's groups that are already in, an important source of resilience for women. For example, they provide a platform for collective action, they help women access credit, savings, and services, and they can disseminate information. Women's organizations and women leaders also need to be at the table when programs are being designed and implemented so that this can be done in a more gender responsive way. And lastly, we know that more farm households are making changes to their farming and livelihood practices in response to rising food prices. And we need to make sure that women have access to information on how to cope effectively with the challenges that they face. This may require expanding women's access to mobile phones and internet services as extension messages are increasingly delivered through uh, digital platforms. So although countries around the world are dealing with the lingering effects of the pandemic, intensifying climate change, and localized conflicts in some cases, we really need to invest resources and put systems in place now to make sure that responses to the crisis reach and benefit women and girls. And this can ensure that they're able to rebound more fully from the current crisis and become more resilient to future crises. Next slide, please. And I'll just conclude by pointing to some resources, um, including the nature piece um, that I mentioned earlier. And uh, with that, I will conclude and turn it back over to Vivian. Thank you so much. Thank you, Elizabeth. That's a wonderful summary. Helps us uh, visualize what we are up to for this seminar. So now let's move on to Elizabeth. Uh, sorry, to Hannah. Hannah Washira is our farmer. Uh, she's based here in Kenya, and she is with an organization called Roots Kenya. Hannah, if you can hear me, please go ahead. I can hear you. Let's let's hear from you. Morning. Here in Kenya, it's Anjo Kiwashira from Nakuru County, Kenya. I'm a rural woman, a champion in Goods, Kenya, and I'm a farmer. I do dairy farming and hot culture in Nakuru. And in Goods, I'm a county coordinator. I coordinate all activity, Goods activities in Nakuru County. And I'm thankful, I'm very much excited to be in this talk, the chats that we are talking about um, my community. And farmers in my community still experience challenges related to the high cost of food, high cost of fuel and agriculture inputs, especially women who are the majority in farming. And as I told you earlier, in, uh, here in Nakuru, we depend uh, of, of the population depend on farming. Nakuru, we have two types of people. 
that is women. There are those women who do farming in their farms. They have land. And there are those who don't have land, but they live by labor work. And those are the young women and those venerable women who cannot be able to, to raise land. And therefore, they much depend on the other women who, who own the land. And due to the high cost of inputs, many farmers have reduced their acreage, farming acreage, uh, uh, from five acres even to one acre, half an acre or quarter an acre. And therefore, they cannot employ casual farm. And those women who depend in the, can you hear me? Yes, Hannah. Maybe you can turn off your camera, and then we can hear you much better. It's it's fluctuating. Turned on my camera. Can you see can, me now? We can okay. see you, but I turn, turn it off. You. Yes, 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 yes. That's, that's okay, okay now. Turn it off. Yes. Oh, okay. Thank you. I was saying due to the high cost of farm inputs and fat, women have reduced their land to one acre, quarter an acre, and even have a cultural in their farm. They are doing their farming with their families. And you can imagine those women that are young girls, young women, and venerable women, those that cannot afford to, undergoing a lot of problems for their children's school fees, healthy, uh, and therefore they are suffering. Also, most of women have diverted from farming to small businesses that call them vibanda those small kiosks and those kiosks cannot manage to pay school fees, manage to buy food for three meals. And therefore, so many women are undergoing a lot of stress. And due to the raw production, women are getting very low profit. And therefore, they cannot be able to pay their loans. Women have been voted loans and therefore uh, they are, they are uh, a GBVs because we usually borrow money from our table banking that is our nature of we save money in our in our in our those each other that is what we call table banking and therefore, they, my connection is very bad. Can you hear me? Hannah, it's Can on and off. Um, it's, it's on and off. Uh, try again. Uh, as I was saying earlier that many women in Nakuru County rely on table banking loans. And that is the money we save every month, and then we borrow from the from the from our groups. 
and then we buy fertilizer, we buy farm inputs, and women now cannot be able to pay because we have no rents. The cost of food, fuel, and agriculture inputs are at a very high cost, and therefore resorting to GBV. And so far, we have not received any support from anywhere. And I think uh, we have an idea how we can support our women. For example, here in Kenya, extensional officers are demand driven. And now since we don't have money, we cannot drive them near us, near our farms. So we are urging government to pay the extensional officers, agricultural officers, buy motorbikes for them so as they can be able to reach us in our farms so that they can train us on how to do uh, new farming method or those seeds that can that can that we can grow with uh, we without ma, ma, without water ama, or fertilizer we are also urging government to reduce to reduce the cost of soil testing because we we are using the wrong fertilizer and therefore reducing our production but if our government can can reduce the cost of soil testing or they offer us a free service for for soil testing we can be able to to know which fertilizer to use in our farms um also we are urging our government to to dig those shadow dams for us here in kenya we call them siranga the small dams that we lay that body in paper on the bottom, then the rainwater will be there and we can use it as, a, uh, as irrigation so that we cannot rely in, in rainwater. We are therefore urging whoever may be concerned to support women with. Uh, you are getting me? Yes, yes, we are Hello getting there. you. Okay. We are also asking for whoever concerned whether they. Women can women and uh, girls can be supported with small grants because because imagine we had just came out from the um, corona and we underwent a lot of process. Now it is dry and the high cost of product uh, or farm inputs. So we are urging whoever can be concerned to help women with small girls so that they can buy fertilizer. For example, if in Nakuru, you give Hannah four bags of fertilizer, I can produce one acre of potatoes. And in three months, I will be able to sell them. And after that, I will be able to plant, plant my potatoes without any support. I will be related to another level. If it is not possible for girls, we are asking interest so that women can be exaggerated to, to where they were before the, uh, the pandemic, before the high cost of living. That is what I can say for now. Thank you. Thank you, Hannah. Uh, you have persevered through the uh, internet uh, challenges, but we were able to get some of the experiences you shared. Um, okay, in case uh, you want me to repeat something, I can repeat it. It's totally fine. We just want to take a few questions uh, okay. from our audience. 
and probably because earlier on we didn't hear you quite well, maybe you can still draw out some of those specific challenges that you think uh, women farmers are faced in areas where you work in. If your connection is better, maybe we can hear that. Lack of rains at now, we, have, we don't have water for irrigation. The high cost of fertilizer and farm inputs, agrochemicals, and women cannot now borrow because they have nothing in their farms. And even uh, women have defaulted from the previous loans. They are suffering. Yeah. Okay. The farms are empty. Hello. Okay. Oh, dear. It looks like we may have lost Viv Oh, Vivian is back. Okay. I'm back. I'm sorry about that. I hope it's not a Nairobi thing. So, um, yes, I'd like to move us on to the panel session. Thank you very much, Hannah, for those insights you've shared with us. I'm sure we'll continue interacting with you. So now I want to introduce our panelists. Is Hannah trying to speak? Okay. Okay, I was muted for a while. Um, I wish to move us to the next session where we are having our panelists. And I want to introduce uh, the panelists we have with us this morning and this evening, depending on where you're joining us. So first up, we have Sahar Al-Nuri, who is Senior Director for Gender Equality and Social Inclusion with Mercy Corps. She can wave if you can see her. Then we also have Nicole Lafour, who's Director at Norman Bolog Institute for International Agriculture in College Station, Texas, A&M University. We'll also have uh, Rima, I'm not sure if Rima is here, but we will confirm that. A Director, Self-Employed Women's Association. And then finally, we are going to hear from David Laborde, who's the Senior uh, Research Fellow with IFPRI. So uh, I do believe uh, you are all here. So I'd like to get us started uh, on our questions starting with you, uh, Sahar. So um, looking at your work with Masikops, what are the gender responsive solutions to the global food crisis that your organization is implementing? And probably how effective are these approaches in addressing the specific needs of women and girls? Over to you, Sahar. Great, thank you so much for the question, Vivian, and thank you for the opportunity to join everyone today. Um, my remarks are going to focus in East Africa, um, partially because the combination of COVID, um, the drought, the food crisis impacts, the layering of these shocks on top of this community um, is unprecedented. Um, and so I'll, I'll focus in this area for my examples. By way of introduction, for those who may not know us, Mercy Corps is an international nonprofit organization working in more than 40 countries around the world. We aim to build more inclusive and resilient futures with our partner communities. Food security is one of our priority areas of intervention. And within this area, we focus on promoting the autonomy of women and adolescent girls within food systems. Currently, we're running around 129 programs, food security programs globally. Um, and last year, we reached 18.5 million people in fragile contexts. In response to the food crisis, We've, um, we're using two main approaches. First, doing everything we can to help maintain food systems in fragile contexts. And I'll, I'll speak um, with an example to this. 
And then second, um, doing everything we can to support livelihoods and especially the livelihoods of women and adolescent girls. I do wanna just emphasize, and this came through in the opening remarks, um, but just, you know, we talk about how women and girls are some of the most impacted by the food crisis, and that's absolutely true. But it's also very important to keep in mind that they have a key role to play in supporting their community's resilience during and through these difficult times. So my first, my first programmatic example comes from the USAID-funded Nawiri program in Kenya. Um, and captures some of the gendered food crisis risks and opportunities in last mile communities in Samburu County, where the minimum expenditure basket costs have increased by $30 since March. And these are communities I believe that are similar to what Hannah was describing. So when I say last mile, I mean very rural, hard to reach. So the Nuiri program provides cash transfers and supports market systems to function better with an eye to maintaining and increasing food access and availability. Last mile communities often face higher prices for commodities. And with the hike in the fuel prices, this has only gotten worse. Now women food suppliers or micro entrepreneurs in last mile communities play a really important role in, in food access for their rural communities. Um, and these women, because of the uh, food crisis and the fuel crisis are traveling further and further away from their homes in order to be able to buy supplies and food to sell in their local communities. So to do this, um, these women suppliers were traveling individually um, and negotiating prices with traders um, in the closest large market. Then they were adding in the extra cost of their travel um, as well as a profit margin to their food prices when they returned to their community to sell their goods. So what, what does this mean? This means that last mile community members are receiving the highest prices for food. They have the least access to food, but they're paying the most. And cash recipients, so people who are receiving cash assistance in rural areas, were spending more money and getting less food than cash recipients who were in uh, locations closer to towns. Also, community members were choosing to bypass their local women suppliers and travel directly to larger markets themselves to save money. This was costing them important time and also risking their safety during this travel. And third, women suppliers' livelihoods, those women traders, um, their livelihoods were at risk because their communities didn't want to buy from them because it was too expensive. So they're traveling to the local markets themselves to get the food. And this risks the availability of food in these rural communities, especially for those households who don't have the option of travel. So what our program did and what's interesting about our approach is that we brought the women suppliers together and helped them to organize into umbrella groups, combine their orders, and then successfully negotiate wholesale price rates at different slightly further markets. So this resulted in significant savings for the women suppliers. For example, a $4 decrease in a bale of maize flour. And those savings they were then able to pass to their customers in those rural last mile communities. We expect this to translate to increased purchase and consumption of diversified foods. Women suppliers have said they feel more confident and have more control over which traders they're purchasing from. Um, and they've also said that this has strengthened the social networks in their village. Additionally, we've recently learned that some of the wholesalers are now willing to travel out to the last mile villages because they know that they have confirmed sales with these umbrella women's groups, which is another positive development and savings for these groups. 
And we identified this intervention in early to, uh, 2022. And we've now been able to expand it to more communities um, within these last mile locations um, in, in Northern Kenya. Now, I share this story for three reasons in particular. First, I want to emphasize that crisis presents opportunity for gender transformative change. In this case, women suppliers are buying, are building their social capital by organizing and collectively bargaining. And that ties back to the, one of the themes that Elizabeth highlighted in her presentation. Um, these women traders are also diversifying their markets, which will make them more resilient in the long term. We often talk about the critical roles that women play at the household level in food production and nutrition, which is absolutely true. But it's also important for us to remember that women play, women play critical roles in their local markets and food systems as well. Finally, this example highlights the importance of connecting and layering humanitarian interventions like multi-purpose cash assistance with market facilitation approaches to promote resilience. Helping women to organize and advocate for themselves is powerful, effective, and sustainable. My second programmatic example um, focuses on um, really supporting the livelihoods, and in particular, the adolescent girls. Um, and in Kenya, Uganda, and Nigeria, we're operating the Girls Improving Resilience Through Livelihoods, or GIRL model. We were operating this model before the food crisis began. Um, <clears throat> And this model focuses on forming safe spaces with peer mentors um, to help girls identify their priorities, gain vocational and business skills um, based on their own interests, um, linking them to credit and saving groups um, in order to, to be able to start small businesses. With the, in, with the, um, the food crisis, we adapted our model and our approach um, to add in greater injections of small grant funds into the, um, the girl saving groups that we created. And this connects back to the point that Hannah was making about how these savings groups are running out of money. It's great to have these groups, but um, they're tapped out. And so what we found was that by injecting additional funds, grants, one time into these groups, we saw incredible positive benefits even during the food crisis and drought. So what we did was we um, we added $1,000 in as a grant fund into 20 girl saving groups in Northern Kenya, reaching roughly 400 girls. The girl groups decided how to manage these funds within their groups. In some cases, um, individual girls decided to borrow the funds to expand their own businesses. In other cases, the girls pulled their funds into joint ventures. Um, like opening a local butchery, or in one case, buying and irrigating their own land. And they've been able to do this now, like during, during the food crisis and drought. Some of the key elements of this approach are the formation of girl groups with self-selected leadership, digital and financial literacy, so making sure they're able to use mobile money platforms like M-Pesa is really important. Mentorship thinking through business mentors ideas and training in specific areas like, for example, butchery. And this is where I think Mercy Corps' girl model has a slightly heavier focus on the livelihoods element um, than some, some other models. And then making sure that the, um, there are girl advisory committees, ward planning committees, and community elders engaged to support the girls and ensure the sustainability of their businesses. Now, some of the early impacts that we've seen from this approach include increased access to nutritious foods, 
foods in last mile locations because some of the businesses that girls are opening focus around groceries or gardening, um, being able to sell foods. This makes foods more uh, affordable without transportation costs and helps address time poverty issues for other households. We're seeing job creation. So with the butchery example, the girls are now hiring men to bring livestock for butchery um, and then to slaughter the animals. So they're actually, they're actually creating jobs. Um, and finally, girls have reported being able to pay school fees and debts um, even during the drought and food crisis. I will stop there um, and thank you so much for the opportunity to join the panel. And thank you, Sahar, for those insights. I like it because you have actually already responded to some of the concerns that Hannah had raised. So I'm sure we'll come back to you even as the audience uh, raises some questions or comments. So allow me to move on to our next panelists. And we have Nicole Lafour, uh, whom I had already uh, introduced as we did the round. And uh, the question for you, Nicole, um, just looking at again the work that you're doing, we want to hear some of the promising uh, gender responsive solutions uh, to the global food crisis that you have observed. And probably you can also share specific lessons that have come through from the work of the Feed the Future Innovation Labs. Over to you. Great, thank you very much. And thanks for um, inviting me to participate today. Um, as you mentioned, I am representing and the director of the small scale, uh, the Feed the Future Innovation Lab for small scale irrigation. There's around 20 Feed the Future Innovation Labs um, whose primary role is research. Um, and so I will talk a bit about the small scale irrigation innovation lab as well as other innovation labs. So I'll give two examples today. Um, the first one is how women are coping with the various crises. So um, trying to understand better how women are coping themselves and what the potential impact of the, those coping strategies are. Um, one of those impacts is that women tend to uh, become very risk averse and they store grains and peanuts, legumes um, during times of crisis. Um, and while this is a um, common strategy, one of the negative effects of that is that it can actually increase the risk of aflatoxins or toxins that come from uh, fungal um, growth during um, improper storage. Um, so there are more than one of the innovation labs. The Peanut Innovation Lab has, has looked at this as well as the um, Innovation Lab for Post-Harvest Loss Prevention. And their response to this coping strategy um, to try to address the health risks is to actually work with women's groups, women farmers groups in Ghana, provide them with proper storage for maize, groundnut, and other types of grains. Um, but importantly, also linking those women's uh, farmers groups to markets for maize. Um, those might be um, providing uh, uh, maize for poultry industry or for other industries that can use those, um, those grains and inputs. So in doing so, they are facilitating linkages to markets to enable women to continue to have the same income, keeping food in the markets available to other consumers and also preventing the growth of the aflatoxins and reducing the health risks of the um, coping strategy of storage. 
Um, and that's been done in Ghana. And it's also an example where the innovation labs are linking with USAID funded implementers in Ghana um, to try to increase resilience and avoid some of the potential risks of uh, strategies that can have unintended consequences. My second example is within the small scale irrigation innovation lab. One of the things that we found as a research um, uh, research program during COVID was that irrigating households that had wells and boreholes tended to have reliable access to water during COVID when there were limitations on mobility um, and also were able to continue to engage in the market. Um, because they were active market players, their movement wasn't restricted as some others were during COVID. So we saw a higher uh, resilience during COVID. And this is something that we've seen also, for example, in IFPRI's research during crises such as droughts, um, where irrigating households tend to have higher resilience and smoother consumption of foods and smoother um, production. And, and as Hannah mentioned, the irrigation aspect and having access to water, whether that's during droughts or during crisis is really important. However, Following COVID with the, um, with the war on Ukraine um, and the other economic crises that have followed, there's been an increase in fuel prices and that's really affected the cost of pumping where irrigators are using diesel and petrol pumps. We've also seen a vast increase in the cost of fertilizer. Um, in some cases uh, within the markets, we can see even 300% increases of, of fertilizer prices where farmers are being taken advantage of. And so one of the ways to address and to decouple this continual uh, link between uh, fuel price crises and food crises is actually to go to alternative or renewable energies. So we're looking and working with various solar pump companies to try to increase access um, to solar pumps uh, to remove that element of the fuel price in terms of irrigation. However, one of the things that we have seen is also in the post-COVID period um, and the economic crisis is we are seeing political crises as well. So in countries where we work, such as Ethiopia and Ghana, where we're seeing, well, sorry, in Mali, where we're seeing those political crises, we're also seeing a real strong market aversion to engaging women in the market. Uh, we're seeing lower access. Uh, I think this was has also been mentioned. We're seeing lower access to um, finance. So while asset-based finance for solar pumps is very promising, we're actually seeing a decline of access to finance, such as tools such as that, um, during these crises because the companies are very risk averse. Um, companies uh, in fertilizer supply have also been a very risk averse in terms of engaging with women as market segments. So one of the things that we are doing as an innovation lab and as a program is facilitating linkages between market actors, as well as working with the um, solar pump companies to understand women as a market segment better. So that, that um, enables them to see uh, where the actual risks are and not to overreact to perceived risks that may not be um, a, a real threat to them in the market. So we're facilitating those linkages um, between actors in the markets and helping the companies develop uh, finance tools that are um, specifically targeting women farmers. Um, and um, 
in that way, we are able to work with private sector um, and not only rely on governments, which are very overstretched during crises, um, but also during periods of political crises um, are not necessarily able to react as quickly as um, some private sector actors. So those are two examples that um, I wanted to share today and in, in, in where we're seeing ways of uh, coping, but we're seeing that because the crises are layered, um, those ways of the strategies for coping can actually have negative effects as well. And I think as a bigger picture takeaway from the future innovation labs is that um, we have to be very careful not to pivot too strongly during crises. So while humanitarian assistance is incredibly important, we also have to uh, maintain the investments in research so that uh, we can continue to develop the, that data that Elizabeth mentioned and the evidence that's needed to be able to very carefully target uh, women um, during periods of crisis. And I will end there. Thank you. Thank you, Nicole, for those insights and for uh, the specific examples you've shared with us, even from West Africa and specifically uh, Ghana. So I'm sure we'll come back to you as we await to hear from our audience. Uh, for the audience, please keep your questions coming. We are coming to the Q&A session shortly. Uh, next on, I'd like to bring um, Rima Nanavati. She is right here with us. I believe she's Director, Self-Employed Women's Association. Nice to see you, Rima. And, and a question for you is, how has Siwa responded to the gendered impacts of the global food crisis? Probably you can even give us a few interventions and approaches that have proven the most effective towards supporting the specific needs of women and girls in the communities you work with. Over to you. Thank you so much, Vivian, and I really appreciate it. I'll be speaking here on behalf of um, the 2.2 million women members of SEVA, 54% of which are small and marginal farmers or agriculture workers or sharecroppers. And as Hannah was sharing, and as we heard from Sarah and also from Nicole, I think uh, moving from um, staple and coarse grains to cash crops uh, has compelled the small farmers to buy food grains at high prices from the markets. Therefore, the need for money increases and due to the rising input costs and climate shocks, the small farmers, especially the youth, find agriculture unviable and unsustainable. And therefore, a lot of agriculture land is also getting converted into infrastructure land. Men are moving away from agriculture, increasing the burden on, of farming on women. Um, also, we see that, you know, long working hours and therefore men skip food. Uh, women don't have access to food because of the high prices, resulting into a vicious circle of indebtedness, poverty, malnutrition, hunger, food insecurity, uh, less education. And I think, uh, I don't want to paint a gloomy picture, but I think, um, 
Therefore, Seva started its agriculture campaign to address the issue of what we are discussing, why does a farmer remain hungry? Um, the campaign addresses that how do we bring uh, recognition of women as farmers? Because in countries like ours, more and more feminization of agriculture is happening. Um, the campaign also focuses on um, bringing integrated services, more access of integrated services. As we heard from Hannah and also from the previous speakers, access to financial services, access to technical services, and access to marketing services. But I would like to here address a few important aspects of how do you build resilience of these small farmers to address the issue of food insecurity and uh, malnutrition resulting due to hunger. And therefore, I think the first and the foremost is you need to organize women as farmers. As we saw, you know, from what Nicole was sharing, also what Sarah was saying, and therefore organizing women-owned agribusiness initiatives, women-owned um, supply chains which are local and decentralized and our experience has shown even during the pandemic that those local decentralized supply chains owned and managed by the women farmers themselves were able to not only sustain but ensure food security during the lockdown they ensured access to market to the farmers women farmers including access to digital platforms so that the farmers did not were not compelled to do distress sale. They also ensured work security and food security at the household level. We have several such initiatives, Rudy, which is our agribusiness initiative, which covers around 25,000 small women farm holders. We have a cadre of 7,000 saleswomen who go from door to door, village to village, who have their own mobile application, a handheld device, which does real-time inventory and sales management and also payment um, gateway. And this increases the collective strength and also the bargaining power of small women farmers. I would also like to add here that, you know, in order to increase the resilience of women farmers, in order to increase food security, we need to integrate farming with animal husbandry and bring in solutions such as regenerative farming. Every farm has its own biogas. You also work on farm top energy planning, how does a farmer also do energy farming so that even during climate shocks and market shocks, there is a, a steady source of revenue for the farmers. And I think the most important is that therefore, how do you turn your farm into an enterprise? So it's a nexus of women, work, farming, energy, agro-processing and food. And when all these things come together, it ensures food security at the household level, but also under women's leadership. And therefore, women and girls are not deprived of food. They are the ones who are become the decision makers when it comes to farming and agriculture. They are therefore relieved from gender-based violence and also from the mental stress that we saw. 
Uh, I would therefore like to suggest two very important aspects since this is our policy um, dialogue as well. Uh, one is that we need, and there's an urgent need to build climate resilience fund for women farmers so that women are able to have access to finance whenever a climate shock hits them. While we are talking, India is going to be hit by a cyclone on its western coast. And um, we also had very unseasonal heavy rains which washed away the entire paddy crop. How do those farmers build resilience to these climate shocks? And the answer to that is a climate resilience fund for women. And I was listening to Hannah, I was listening to Sarah, to Nicole, and we were all talking about solar pumps, about market access, uh, about precision irrigation, having access to water. And I feel that the issues of women and farmers, any part of the world in the global south are the same. And therefore there is urgent need to have a South-South learning and knowledge sharing platform. Um, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to share on behalf of 2.2 million women farmers of our country. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Rima, for coming in and for all that you have shared. I saw some of us nodding when you spoke to animal husbandry and the issue of diversification. So very solid points and also drawing in the connections from our first speaker, Nicole, uh, from Sahar, Nicole, and even to examples from Hannah. So thank you so much. David, I do believe you are ready. You have been waiting for us. David is Senior Research Fellow at IFPRI, and he takes the stage next. So David, looking all sharp and ready. To what extent do high-level policies, um, for instance, the G7, G20, take into consideration the gendered impacts of the food crisis and could you give us specific policies that were specifically designed uh well from for from a gender perspective a few examples David. okay thanks thanks a lot and uh, viviane and thanks everyone for for being here so yes let me reflect a bit about um what, what i have seen uh, over the last actually three years because we have moved from the COVID crisis to uh, this uh, food and energy uh, and input uh, crisis this year. Uh, and I will say that, so we have made progress about how to try to uh, integrate gender in some of this discussion, but uh, there is still a kind of long road to um, actually mainstream this thinking. Um, and so we are still not in a mature situation, I will say about it. Uh, because if you are part of a high level policymaker uh, discussion and things like this, you will see basically that you have four groups of people. You have on one hand people that have, I would say, internalized the specific challenges faced uh, by uh, women and girls in this type of situation, and they are going to try to integrate it from the beginning in their thinking. Um, but if we are optimistic that 20% of the people, then you have uh, people that doesn't care to gender until the end and say, oh, if we don't say or do something on gender, we will look bad. So they don't internalize really the challenges of gender, but they are going to add a bit of gender flavor at the end to uh, check the box. 
Um, and unfortunately, if you see some of the uh, high-level declaration, for example, from the G7 or G20, you are going to see it. You know, if you take, for example, the first uh, uh, declaration from the Minister of Agriculture from May this year, you have 34 paragraphs. You are going to start to see women appearing on paragraph 24, just to say it has to be inclusive for women, and gender appear in paragraph 32, saying that gender is important. So you, you, you feel this, we add it at the end. Uh, third, you have people that uh, just doesn't care and will not care and have not even internalized it. So uh, that I will say potentially the old school. Uh, and at the, at the opposite, you have the people that will always try to say it's gender related, gender is important everywhere, or it has to be gender sensitive, even in situation where it cannot or it doesn't make sense in the middle of the crisis. Uh, when we deal with specific uh, challenge in the logistics sector, for instance, and basically all the truck companies and truck drivers are, are men, and then you see people say, oh, we should to make sure that 25% of the beneficiary are women. That's not going to happen, okay? So, you know, we, we are still in this situation where we have a bit of extreme, um, and we have to, to actually make progress on, on that. Um, to really internalize all the points we have seen from the other participants so far, because it can be done, uh, but it should not be done because you feel forced to do it, but because it's actually uh, very beneficiary for the system uh, to do it. Um, and that's part of the issue. Now, I think we are also in this situation because if you start to see the, the demographics of the different decision makers, for the very high level policymakers, they are political appointees or uh, elected. And today's, let's be honest, we start to see a lot of diversity. I mean, a lot of the minister in terms of development, foreign affairs, maybe not so much agriculture, but it depends. I mean, in Africa, we have, for example, a good example. You will see more gender balance. But these people are, I would say, in the front line, but doesn't really prepare decision and doesn't make decisions. So if you move to, I will say, the uh, the mid-level technician people, people that have experience, that's where you will see major gender um, imbalances, where basically 80% of the people preparing or making this decision are still men. Uh, I don't say that men cannot care about gender. I just say that actually that introduced, of course, some, some bias in the discussion, but also put uh, the 20% women that are in the room in a very specific situation, because we have, at the same time, represent different policy options and be the voice of the woman in a situation where actually without them, sometimes the woman's voice will not be heard. Uh, but of course, if you're in the room with eight men, you are going to see very nuanced potentially opinion on different things because you try to represent the landscape uh, of men thinking, but just the society thinking because it's not so uh, we are dealing with complex question. When you just have two women by sampling bias, you know, uh, you, you just get one flavor. And so in terms of debate, that's not structure. Now, the good news is if you go down one more level, uh, and so you see the young professional that actually making a lot of the groundwork, that's where I think we have a new generation uh, that is much more uh, balanced. And actually where you have a lot of bright women that uh, will mean that, you know, in 10 or 15 years, I'm much more optimistic because the demographic wave will change uh, actually a lot of things in governance, but that's the situation um, today in terms of how these decisions are made and how the gender aspect sometimes uh, permeates the discussion or, or not. 
Now, if we look at what are the decisions uh, made and taken, I think that when we are in the humanitarian dimension of this crisis, obviously the gender aspects have been much more uh, understood and taken care of. Um, we uh, see that when it's about refugees, um, you know, maybe sure we have refugees in northern Ethiopia, we have also refugees from, from Ukraine in various places. People understood how a woman and girl can be very, very vulnerable to this situation. So we try to think about it. We may not be really act about it at scale yet, but at least that's well uh, understood. Similarly, when we were dealing with the COVID aspect, I mean, some of the cash transfer programs were really uh, targeted also of other gender dimension, because people also understand that to address some of the food security issue, targeting women can actually deliver much more uh, than targeting men. So we have seen this evolution or specific aspect like school feeding program just to make sure that girls are not dropping out of school. Uh, that's the type of things where I think really gender, the gender dimension of policies have been well, well understood. More recently, uh, I mean that the, the initiative from USAID also to uh, support much more uh, nutritional supplement, for instance, of course, benefit women, but also benefit uh, children a lot. And we know that um, in practice, uh, the, the well-being of, uh, of children is in many cases a responsibility of the women. So helping them to, to deliver on that is important. But if we now think about more structural policies and more long-term development, that's where I still think that, you know, um, we, we are a bit, as I have said, lagging behind, you know, uh, even if, uh, as I've said, many panelists have raised, you know, how you can make it happen and why you, you want to make it happen but it really doesn't transpire in the large policy discussion for the reason I have raised before. Thank you. Thank you, David, for the comments you have made. They are well appreciated. I do believe there are a couple of questions that are coming in. Uh, so I'd like to move us on to the question and answer session. Uh, probably we can have all the panelists uh, on the screen and then we can move right ahead. So first question, uh, we have one from Dr. Nadir Shah, who asks, how can policymakers influence women? I, I believe I dropped off. Sorry about that. Um, so the question was coming in from Dr. Nadir Shah, and uh, uh, he asks, how can policymakers influence women's choices at household level when in South Asia, uh, females are at the giving end of the combined family system? Um, do we have any who would like to come in? Any of our panelists? Uh, I know Rima would have been perfect, but she had to drop off. But we have the colleague, Mansi. Okay. Hi, uh, Vivian. Can you? Uh, hi, this is Mansi here from Seva. Am yes, Mansi. Uh, yes, Vivian, I can, can hear you. Repeat, can you please repeat the question? 
Uh, there was a question. Uh, I think it was uh, the example came in from South Asia. And so Dr. Shah asks, how can policymakers influence women's choices at household level when in South Asia, females are at the giving end in the combined family system? Did you get that? Hello, am I audible? You are audible. Thank you. Uh, so yes, I wanted to just add that, uh, I mean, uh, I wanted to add here that uh, uh, generally uh, the policy, uh, in order to include uh, uh, women in the policy, uh, uh, I mean, influence policies, uh, I believe that there is a need to have a bottom-up approach to policy uh, making. Uh, basically, there is a need for integrating the women uh, representatives of uh, women workers in the policy making framework. Uh, Secondly, the day, uh, a lot of policy making is uh, depend uh, is based on data, and therefore uh, it is very important uh, to have very effective uh, ground level and authentic uh, data. And uh, currently, there is a big uh, uh, there is a big uh, uh, gap in the data collection, especially when it comes to uh, women from the informal sector and the rural women workers. And therefore, because of this lack in data, uh, the policies that are being framed are not very um, uh, relevant to the informal sector workers or they are not able to access those policies. And therefore, if uh, the women are included, one in the design, dissemination and uh, implementation of the policies, and secondly, the policies are based on the data that is collected bottom up so that the women themselves are responsible for collecting the data uh, that can help in uh, policymakers in influencing uh, women at household level. Thank you, Mansi, for that response. I do believe it's quite clear. So we'll take another question and this one, um, We'd like to direct it to David, if you can come back on. So Maria Misheva asks, how is the food insecurity and food crisis affecting women and girls in Europe and what needs to be done? So uh, I, I mean, uh, in Europe, of course, the food crisis overall is nothing to be compared to, um, to the situation you, we can see in Africa or, or South Asia. Uh, for, for most of the population. Then we have the specific situation that actually takes place in Ukraine uh, with part that is in the war zone. And, and actually, I mean, uh, the suffering of the local population here is um, similar to what we can see in other war zone. And unfortunately, we know how, how women and girls can be targeted by, uh, by, by, by that. For the refugee population in Europe, um, being the Ukrainian that have moved to uh, other European countries, a very specific uh, program put in place. Uh, but for instance, uh, what is discussed today is already the fact that when these refugees will have to go back to Ukraine, in the situation we are doing the winter, if you follow the news, actually the energy infrastructure of Ukraine is targeted by, uh, by Russia. And so people will not have eating systems, you know, and when you have a, a, a young kids and things like this. Uh, so that's very specific, you know, problem that in other parts of the world we, we, we may not have to face. Uh, but uh, fortunately, the uh, solidarity of your grand countries we, will continue. But overall, uh, I mean, what we also see is um, 
women today in Europe are facing, uh, even if the European society may have evolved on some aspect, in many cases, we still see, you know, women in charge of um, cooking, uh, doing the groceries, and also uh, working in their, I mean, uh, active life, because the, the labor participation of women is very high in Europe. And you can still see very large variation um, in, in terms of support that is granted. So food security is not threatened like we will see in other parts uh, of the world. But this question of you know how much pressure is put on women in terms of having to deal with the stress of, of these different missions that are still uh, on their uh, on their shoulder uh, is there. And also what we see is adjustment in terms of uh, nutrition diversity also or the quality of food, meaning that because there is also a significant food inflation in, in Europe, uh, 10-15%, uh, people are, are degrading in terms of quality sometimes of their diets um, and, and go back to staples or uh, go for less uh, nutrition food or, for example, from you know uh, food that people were uh, like organic food they were aiming to consume, now they've moved to non-organic. And in many cases, that choices that have to be made by uh, by women, and they are to do this adjustment. So that's how I can uh, rebalance this. Um, but that way, also, you know, the the type of uh, social and policy response that you see in Europe can be gender or uh, less gender bias, depending on, on very specific country. Because here, that's you know, even the European Union, for example, has policy-wide action. A lot depend on the member state, and you can see very heterogeneous responses by a national and regional government. So this question that we just discussed before about, you know, what is the policy making? How to its extent it's bottom up uh, can can impact uh, actual uh, implementation. Great. Thank you, David, for that response. Uh, we can take another. Um, this uh, Anyone can take it, uh, either Nicole or Sahar or any of our panelists. So what are the remaining gaps in the global response to the food crisis? And what are we to be doing differently or more of? I'm happy to start responding to this, but I suspect that others might want to add in as well. Um, Unfortunately, there are quite a few gaps. Um, I think one that I would really like to highlight is the importance of investing in local women's organizations in particular who are present and active on the ground um, and who get just a minuscule amount of funding. Um, and they, are, they know their communities the best. They know what, they know what the women um, and families in their communities need and finding ways to make sure that they're able to really lead in our responses is important. Um, additionally, I think that, you know, David was talking a little bit about some of the, the attitudes, right, around policymakers on how much they're prioritizing addressing gender inequality. I think the issue around attitudes goes from the policy levels all the way down to the household level. And I think it's important that we really think about in all of our interventions, what are the power dynamics in the communities where we're working? And, you know, how are we making sure that when we're working with families, we're working with women and men, we're creating more choice, more opportunity, and we're doing everything that we can to prevent 
um, gender-based violence, right? Certainly prevent exacerbating it and being really, really thoughtful about that. One of the outcomes of the food crisis that we haven't talked about very much here is how much we've seen increases in gender-based violence as a result of the increased tensions, also as a result of migration. Um, and I think that it's it's just something that needs to be, we need to be thinking about this in every single thing that we do. Um, additionally, I think that the, the examples that I shared were speaking a lot about women's leadership and girls' leadership and creating more, more choice and options for them. And I think this also goes back to the question perhaps that um, Dr. Shaw asked as well. I think that when, when we provide people, right, and certainly women and girls with the information that they need and with the opportunity to make choices for themselves and to have control over what happens, we see amazing benefits, not only for them, but also for their households and their communities. And we see increasing resilience, but we're not investing in this enough. We're not measuring this enough. Um, and if we really want to, to continue to make progress in this area, we need more data. We don't wait for the data to take action, but we need more data. Um, so I'll, I'll pause there, but I suspect others on the panel may want to chime in. Great open invitation to the other panelists to come in. I'll, I'll come in and, and add and, and appreciate uh, Sahar for mentioning the issue of migration as well, which of course we are seeing and it, it really does have a big impact on, on so many things at the household level and the community level. Um, but I do want to re-emphasize the importance of um, looking again at finance. Um, and this is at multiple levels. I mean, we've mentioned it in terms of the household level. We've mentioned it in terms of uh, savings and loans and, and women's groups. Um, but there's also need for um, special accommodations for you know, private sector partners that are attempting to address some of the gaps uh, where public sector is not able to come in at this point because they're also overstretched. Um, so I do think that it's important for us to look at these different finance mechanisms at those different scales. Um, you know, there's ways that um, perhaps climate finance could be used. Uh, Rima mentioned the importance of having some special um, financial mechanisms for women's groups at, at higher scale that could be cascaded down. Um, so I do think that it's important for us to continue to look at how to manage these various um, resource facilities and um, look at where that finance is needed and the best way to use finance um, during crises um, because we have multiple crises at the same time um, and we may, it, it may require and I believe that it does require adaptation um, of these different facilities to address the crises. Over. Great. Thank you, Nicole, for that response. Can I can I come in? Uh, this is Mansi again. Sure, Mansi. Yeah, go ahead. Um, yeah. Thank you, Vivian. And uh, I just uh, very good answers by Nicole and Sahar. And I just wanted to add a small one, uh, a couple of points that uh, uh, in addition, uh, I mean, there is also uh, in our uh, some of the most uh, one of the most important thing uh, from our experience working with the uh, women workers, rural women workers, uh, is that we need to look at the whole um, 
uh, we need to adopt a holistic approach when it comes to policies. Uh, so uh, especially looking at farm as an enterprise and we need to promote regenerative farming, then focus on uh, not just policies and finance, but uh, take an entire holistic approach that looks on looks at capacity building, uh, access, affordable access to technical and technological inputs, then access to obviously access to finance and also uh, forward backward market linkages. If if these if the policies focus on this whole uh, holistic approach that looks at farm as an enterprise for the poor, small and marginal farmers, then we would be able to address the uh, address the issue of food security in the global south countries. And secondly, we also need to uh, globally the issues of food security and nutrition security are being looked at in a separate uh, uh, in silos, uh, but we need to, when it comes to uh, informal sector women workers, especially in the countries of global south, the issues of food and nutrition security are very closely connected, and therefore also there is a need to take a holistic and integrated approach. Thank you. Thank you, Mansi, uh, for that response. We have another question from Cordelia Adamu. Cordelia asks. What immediate measures do governments need to take so as to reduce the gendered food crisis, noting similar world food crisis like in 2008? So just quick immediate measures, quick wins probably. And again, this is open. Anyone can get us started. If I can, and I will bridge it with the previous question. Um, I think that we just have to be careful about prioritizing the, the quick win and the short response because that's what I am most afraid of. That you know, first you see the crisis, so everyone uh, want to be potentially uh, show more solidarity or more action. But I really think that when we, we look at it from a gender lens, that's a long term issue. You know, if in the middle of the crisis, uh, women and girls are more exposed, it reflects a lot of the structural imbalances and weaknesses that we have to deal with. So, you know, that's going to be several years, I hope not decade, but at least several years of continuous investment and action to solve this structural uh, problem that have been discussed. And also we want to not have, you know, lost generation or, or sacrifice courts of people. That's also what I'm afraid of, you know, uh, as I was saying before, we had people that have dropped school during COVID how we are going to catch them up or also uh, and it's something very unfortunately gender specific is underage uh, marriage and, and so we, we have during this crisis we see family that have to kind of sacrifice uh, their, their girls and we cannot say you know that's done it's done of course we want to try to prevent it and that's where you know some action as cash transfer is important but it requires also good targeting and that's why, why the role of um, women organization can be so important to deploy the action uh, uh, properly. But I will say, of course, we want to act in the middle of crisis. But if the crisis starts to become less important in six months, we should not forget about what is at stake here and also try to save the victim of the crisis in the coming years, because people that have suffered today, in particular, uh, some girls will continue to pay the burden of this crisis all their life if we don't act uh, accordingly. Thank you. Thank you, David. Um, so let's act accordingly. That's where he stopped at. Um, 
Nicole or Mansi or probably Sahar, anyone who wants to come in on the same question or a word of caution. I had David cautioning us oh, to beware of quick, quick fixes. Yeah, and, and I mentioned that as well when I was talking that one of the things that we've looked at jointly as the Feed the Future Innovation Labs is while we understand the importance of um, pivoting to emergency responses and humanitarian assistance, it's also important to maintain the emphasis on research and the emphasis on programs that are trying to build resilience, whether that resilience is within a market or a food system um, or with the environmental connections. Um, we do have to be really cautious, um, as, as David mentioned, about um, you know, reacting in a quick way, looking for those quick wins and then possibly sacrificing um, the depth of the data and the evidence um, and the information that's needed and that grassroots engagement um, that Mansi mentions, all of that is really important to being able to not just achieve structural changes, but even as we design these um, assistance programs to be able to do those effectively and target them properly. So we do have to be a bit careful um, about what we're sacrificing as we try to do some of these um, so-called quick wins. Over. If I may, if I may add to this, David actually said what what I was going to uh, prioritize, which was making sure that we're keeping laser focus on, in particular, adolescent girls and young women during this time, because what is happening right now will affect them, their well-being, their lives, um, and their communities. And cycles of entrenched poverty continue when we see early, in particular, when we see um, early first birth. Um, I would like to build a little bit on what Nicole said, though, because I do think it's important to find that balance. We are facing a humanitarian crisis, and we need to act. Um, and, and Nicole, my understanding of what you're saying is that that is important, but also that we need to make sure that we're doing it in smart ways um, so that we're not undermining market approaches or more facilitative approaches that will, that will continue to give benefits long after humanitarian support has ended. But I do think that it's really, this is a really important time for, for us in our industry to make sure that we are keeping both of those, both of those items in sight. Um, because we do have a humanitarian mandate, people are in need now, um, and we can't we can't wait for all the data to come in to act. And this is where I think that, like for for USAID, um, looking at how Feed the Future operates and looking at how BHA operates and where and how can those can those streams connect and overlap and support each other um, is a really important area of further thought and investigation. Thank you, Sahar. Um, Elizabeth, I do believe you want to weigh in as well on yeah, the same thanks. question. Thanks, Vivian. Yeah, I also wanted to weigh in on this tension between the need to act quickly in, in times of crisis and then the need to also keep that long-term perspective about how do we um, address gender inequalities, how do we address harmful social norms. And I just want to return and emphasize something that Sahar said in her presentation is that these crises also offer us some opportunities. Um, 
to look for areas where we can have more gender transformative change. And I think David gave the example of truck drivers that we don't need quotas of, you know, having 25% women truck drivers, and maybe quotas are not the way to go, but I still think we need to be open-minded and look for opportunities where maybe we can create more space for women and, and um, you know, for them to operate in non-traditional spaces or non-traditional roles that will then set them up uh, for, you know, further success after the crisis has passed. So I just wanted to weigh in on that. Thanks, Vivian. Great insights. And again, just reiterating um, what our panelists have shared. So that's very good to add emphasis. Okay, so um, colleagues, friends, partners, uh, thank you very much for the session we have had. We now want to move on to hear some reflections uh, just before we finish this session. So we have just about seven minutes and we'll be done. I want to invite uh, Nicoline Dehan. Nicoline is the director of the CGI Agenda Impact Platform. She has been listening in keenly all the way from the start to the panel session and now she wants to give us a few reflections. Welcome, Nicoline. Thank you and thank you for giving me this opportunity to do this. Um, first of all, thanks for the panelists and, and for all the speakers. Uh, great reflections, great uh, points were made. And so my job is at some level very easy, but at some level also very complicated uh, because there were so many good points. So how do you capture that? So I'm not going to do a summary, but I'm just going to start with a comment that was made. Um, I think it was by David, but um, about why doesn't it happen? Because I still think, I mean, I was involved very closely with, for instance, uh, bird flu, avian influenza, big crisis. It was a human, you know, this was pre-COVID when we were still worried it was going to get to people. And somehow we didn't learn that much. Um, so I'm worried that if we don't watch out, we'll have the next crisis and we're still not there. So why doesn't it happen? And so my thinking then is, let's pretend it's 2033. And what would we want and where would we want to be? Um, so then thinking about that, I thought of three different areas. So first the what, then the how, and then the who. And so I just want to take you through uh, those different ones. So the what, one of the things that came up very much is that, uh, <laughs> that COVID and the food crisis is bringing up all these stories. So the what, the data, and I, I don't only talk about the big numbers, I think they're important, but what we really hear in all of these conversations is the actual direct impact on people's lives. It's not something far away, it's actually what's happening here and now to a lot of the people that, that we work with. So I think that's quite important. And how do we actually capture that and use that in future, uh, use that as a mechanism to understand better what are those dynamics, where are those points of, of, of stress that we can alleviate, that we can uh, do something about. So I think that's quite important. It also shows that we need to start measuring change better. I think that was a very well point made. made. I mean, we need to understand how these changes are happening and how we can measure them as well. But it also shows again as well, we do need some of the big, big data. Um, we do need to understand how it has a bigger effect uh, globally and, and, and on societies. So for, for me, for what really has come out of, of this conversation is we do have a lot of data coming out, 
this is one of the first ones where we actually looked from the beginning what the impacts were, were on women. I mean, avian influenza, we started a little after it had already happened. So I think that's good. Let's learn from that. Let's see how we can use that in the future. So that's one point I would like to make. Then the how, and I think this was really a nice conversation that was sort of at the end, because I think there's two levels. We need to build long-term resilience, and everybody agrees on that. We need to really build, figure out how we can do things in the long term, but we also need short-term uh, fixes. We don't have time to only work on the long-term things. And I think some of those were really brought up. For instance, short-term fixes. I think there were some mentions. I mean, Hannah mentioned some of the things. We did need this now, better fertilizer, you know, getting a better, we already have limited resources. Let's, the resources we have, let's use them better. So I think that's very neat. Irrigation was mentioned. Um, work we're doing, which is actually identifying where the hot spots of inequities are growing because of climate change, for instance, let's target those so it doesn't get too bad, you know, so that we don't have to work double to get uh, forward. So I think those are some of the short term gains and we can make them, we can do them. But again, we have to listen to each other as well. The other how is more the long term resilience. And this actually is quite complicated and uh, several of the mentions, several issues were mentioned, policy for instance, power relations, those are all important in there, but we need to work on them. If we don't work on them, it won't work. And I think some of the comments made, you know, the younger generation, they get it, it's fine, they'll move forward, but we still have policies done by older generations. How do we make sure that those actually do also make, make a difference? And having more women at the table is important, but having more women and men who actually understand the gender issues is even more important. Just putting a woman at a table does not mean she's gonna break the table or is gonna actually have the voice of women. I think we do need to get that understanding better. And again, goes back to some of that data, some of that understanding, how do we feed that when people have a voice about gender issues, they have the right voice. They, they know what to argue for, they know, what to, you know, what the evidence base is behind it. So I think that's very important on, on how we move forward. So making sure we have the double track um, uh, approach, long-term long -term resilience, but also short-term fix, because this is a high urgency situation. Then the how, um, I think, or, or the who, sorry, the who that we need to talk to, my last one, the who, I think we need to really start thinking of everybody's agents of change and not project people out there. It's all of us, all of us need to be part of this change. We all need to be agents of change in this. And I think one of the big ones that's really coming out and, and some of us have know, known this for a long time, but women are in agriculture. So why not give them the right tools? Why not give them the cutting edge tools to deal with climate change, develop them for them, make sure that we understand their needs and as we move forward, develop uh, those tools. But that also means having those women at the table to talk about what they need. Um, and we often don't do that. So I think that's one very important. But all of society also needs to help change those norms because we know if we don't do any of that, it's not gonna move ahead. We can empower women as much as we want. As I always say, when, when I was growing up, my father taught me I could do everything but somehow the rest of the world didn't get that memo as a woman. And, and so, you know, how do we all change those societal norms? We're all involved in that. Like I said, give them the cutting edge technology, but also one of the comments made, I think by, by Hannah was also about make it profitable. Again, it doesn't need to be sexy. Uh, we recently heard that in, 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 in one of our panels, 
don't try to pretend that agriculture is sexy, just make it profitable and then it will work. So I think that's, I, I sort of throw this back to some of the more agricultural oriented people that we do need to make agriculture more profitable. And then last but not least, I think a very good point made by, by Rima, let's have more South to South sharing. It's gonna get worse. There are places where people have experience. Let's build upon that so that we don't get worse across the world. So again, thanks again for taking for for allowing me these few minutes to uh, give some reflections. Again, thanks very much to the panel and to the speakers. You gave me the the, the fodder for my reflections. Appreciate it. Thanks. And we appreciate all the wrap up that you have done, the closing remarks. Thank you very much, Nicoline. So colleagues, friends, partners, uh, we have to bring this to a close. We are at the top of the hour. Please tune in to IFPRI's event tomorrow, uh, October 27th at 9.30 a.m. EDT time. The event is on agriculture in the Americas on the road to COP27. Thank you very much for the time you have uh, spared to join us and for all the useful uh, conversation we've had, uh, including in the chat box and in the other forums. See you next time. Bye.